everybody, and welcome to episode 17 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week, we're going to be talking about CoffeeScript with Jeremy Ashkenaz. And Jeremy is here. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing good. How are y'all doing? Good. It's been a few episodes since you've been on. Do you want to just give people a quick introduction again? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Jeremy Ashkenaz, and you may know me from such open source projects as uh, CoffeeScript or Backbone.js or Underscore.js. And uh, I work for the interactive news team at the New York Times, and uh, I used to work at full full time. I still work on it, sort of part time, on a documentcloud.org, which was a Knight Foundation funded project uh, where we open sourced a lot of JavaScript stuff. All right. Um, we also have AJ O'Neill. What's up? That's we, all I got to say. <laughs> we also have Jameson Dance. Hey, guys. And then we're also going to be um, introducing a few new regular panelists. We have Joe Eames, who's been on the show before. Hey. Do you want to give a quick introduction, Joe? Yeah. Um, I'm the uh, creator of testdrivenjs.com, which is a website devoted to bringing test-driven development to JavaScript. And I'm also an author for Pluralsight. Awesome. And we also have Tim Caswell. Hello. Do you want to introduce yourself for us? Uh, sure. So I am a open source addict. I write codes because I can't sleep sometimes. I've recently worked a lot on Node. And in the past, I've worked with Jeremy on CoffeeScript and Backbone and other parts of Document Cloud. Awesome. All right. So um, let's jump in and talk about CoffeeScript. Um, uh, Jeremy, do you want to give us a quick introduction to what CoffeeScript is? Sure. CoffeeScript is just sort of a fun uh, thought experiment, which which and uh, and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of languages that compile the JavaScript. If you haven't checked it out, there's a there's a great page on the CoffeeScript wiki where um, some folks have just put in all different kinds of languages that folks have written that compile in the JavaScript. So there's the usual things that you'd expect, like um, you know things like Python and Ruby and Haskell and other scripting languages that sort of cross compile over. There's interesting things like statically typed extensions to JavaScript or security enforcing JavaScript um, or special optimized um, versions of multi-targeting um, programming languages like uh, Hacks or Haxia, I never know how to pronounce it, where you can compile down to different runtimes. Um, there's visual programming tools and, and all kinds of things. Um, so the idea with CoffeeScript is sort of not to go in that direction and to take a different idea or a different semantic or a different runtime and implement it on top of JavaScript because there's lots of great languages that do that kind of thing already. The idea with CoffeeScript is to take the core sort of um, the core things about JavaScript that are characteristic to it, sort of the, the core nature of JavaScript, and then come up with a way of writing it that exposes um, what it is in a simple way. So part of the goal is not to have any special semantics being added by the CoffeeScript compiler just to take advantage of what JavaScript already offers, but find an easier way to sort of write it. And so it's a funny premise, you know. Part part of the premise is that it can't really do that much for you, right? If it's anything that's technically interesting, CoffeeScript probably can't do it because you'd have to implement stuff on top of JS, and we have to sort of try to be very lightweight. But it's also been interesting that I think because of that um, restriction, it has turned out to be to be quite successful. So I, I don't know how, I think these numbers are pretty skewed because of GitHub's methodology, but it recently cracked into the GitHub top 10 programming languages list, uh, knocking off Objective-C, which is pretty crazy. I think most of that is, uh, is auto-generated um, template files in Rails projects, but, but who knows? It's, uh, it's, it's doing decently. So there's, there's this, you know, everyone who's worked with JavaScript for a long time and who does JavaScript day-to-day -day knows how 
unideal of a language it is, right? So it's a beautiful language. It's got a great heart. There's lots of interesting um, core pieces to it in terms of its flexible object model and, uh, and its nice sort of prototypal semantics where you can build your own object orientation. But at the same time, its usability is not where it, where it should be, right? It basically hasn't changed. The way that we use it today basically hasn't changed in, in 10 or 15 years. Um, and despite great things like ES5, you still can't take advantage of it if you have to target major browsers or if you want to write JavaScript that runs everywhere and that will run in IE7 as well as it runs on Node.js. So I think CoffeeScript is sort of hitting that, hitting that sweet point for a lot of folks who, mm -hmm. uh, who want a nicer way to write the JavaScript that they already have to write. Right. So, so I want to ask the other panelists, how many of you guys um, are using CoffeeScript or are using it on a regular basis? So at ITV, we actually use CoffeeScript full-time for all of our new code, and we love it. There were a couple grumpsters when we first started, but everybody is a big fan of CoffeeScript now. So you rock, Jeremy. Thanks. <laughs> nice. Cheers. So I, I use it a lot, but I'm using Rails, and Rails uses it by default. So uh, I, I, I typically use it. Um, just because the the files are already set up to you know precompile from CoffeeScript to JavaScript, so it, it works out pretty well for me just to use it in the uh, asset pipeline that way. And uh, you know it's it's nice in a lot of ways um, for writing your JavaScript. Is anyone else using it on a regular basis? I actually don't use it, but that's for the most part I'm writing Node libraries, so I only have one runtime to target, and they're libraries. So the less dependencies, the better. The, the better. Right. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I can definitely see the need for it for applications where you you have a certain style of programming and you don't like all the boilerplate. It can be very handy. And I think doesn't npm have a, a field that you can put to to like precompile your CoffeeScript into JavaScript before you publish? I think I saw yeah. Isaac tweet about that or something because somebody was somebody was complaining about CoffeeScript in npm and and he well so that's that you that's that's actually one of the really funny things. So I think currently CoffeeScript is the, if you look at search.npmjs.org, you'll see that CoffeeScript is the second most depended on NPM module as a dependency, which is kind of crazy <laughs> because really if everyone's doing it correctly, there should be zero NPM modules with CoffeeScript as a dependency, right? You're not supposed to depend on it at runtime. There's no need to. You can just precompile it into JavaScript before you publish your package. Um, so that's that's funny. Unless you're like making some special CoffeeScript add-on that needs yeah. it as a runtime or whatever. Unless unless you're making like a special CoffeeScript REPL or something, then there's no real, real reason to depend on it. So it, I don't know what all those packages are doing that, that they think they need it, but there's quite a few. Mm -hmm. So what dependencies does CoffeeScript have in order to compile? Is it just JavaScript or is there it more is, to it? Well, it's, it is just CoffeeScript actually. So it's, it's written in itself um, and it's been that way I think since 0 0.5. Um, it's got one sort of major external dependency which is JSON, which is a parser generator um, maintained by Zach, Z-A-A-C-H on, uh, on GitHub. And, uh, and that's just a, just a nice JavaScript parser generator that happens to generate efficient parse tables. Um, it does, what is it, it does bottom up. Um, parse tables, so you can. I think there's LLR, LLR one modes, and then a few other, a few other types that you can opt into, and you give it a grammar, and it gives you back um, basically a parser, and it's fast, which is the main thing. There's lots of of nice JavaScript parser projects with good APIs that that can't parse particularly quickly, and this one is, is he's sort of done all the work both theoretically and in the JavaScript implementation to make it very very quick for parsing. It takes a while to generate the parser, but once it's generated, it's quick to parse. Nice. So one other thing I'm curious about, and this is kind of up Joe's alley here, is have you seen people writing tests in like QUnit and stuff using CoffeeScript? Sure. Actually, I think that's one of the things that people sort of start with, people who are evaluating it or looking at it. Um, I've heard a lot of stories about folks who aren't using it for their app, but they're using it for their Jasmine tests. 
just because I think when you have a, you try to make those tests as readable as possible, right? You're giving it a string and then you're passing a function all the time. So it's always like name this thing, pass a function, name this thing, pass a function. And people don't like typing function, function, function. So that's like their first little uh, gateway drug into uh, trying CoffeeScript more is to redo their Jasmine tests with it. Right. Interesting. So that that's one thing you're, you bring up uh, typing the keyword function over and over again, um, as opposed to using the arrow notation. And I've, I've heard some people complain about it and other people go crazy over it, you know, because they love it. Um, what, what kind of reactions have you guys heard regarding the, the arrow notation? That's the dash uh, greater than or the equals greater than. So uh, I remember Joaquin, who used to be on the podcast, he talks about how it encourages the use of anonymous functions. He was kind of grumpy about that um, because who likes anonymous functions? Um, and I find myself doing that a lot too. I, I'm still not sure how I feel about it. I know it's way better to, to write or way, way easier, I should say, to write the code like that. Um, and since it's easy, I do it a lot. I, I don't know. I haven't really been you bit should feel hard dirty. by it. That's but. how you should feel. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the thing is though, is for me, it feels a little bit more expressive because my brain can parse that just as easily as parsing function, and uh, it kind of indicates there's something you know that comes after this that that is that means something, and so my brain can just parse that and say it's a function. It's whatever's nested here is part of this function. And so, you know, is is writing is encouraging people to write anonymous functions just a, a something that comes out of it maybe being a little bit more expressive or? Well, I think there's a couple a couple different things to get into here. Um, one of which is that it's not so much about the anonymousness of the functions like that. That isn't really the issue, especially because modern um, browser engines can tell you the name of a function even if it is technically an anonymous function. Whatever the property it's attached to, they'll have that in the stack trace. Um, so many more functions are named than you would think. The real issue with the, the semantics of it is that in JavaScript, you have these three different types of function objects. You have function declarations, you have named function expressions, and you have function expressions. And semantically, they all behave slightly differently. Um, and it's problematic because there's bugs related to, to function declarations and named function expressions in Internet Explorer that can trip you up pretty badly if you happen to run into them. Um, and, and it's also weird to have these three different types of objects that behave slightly differently but are basically the same thing. So that's one semantic um, simplification that CoffeeScript does is it says we just want to have one type of function. We don't want to have three different kinds that work differently. So we just have function expressions, which are the flexible kind, right? A function declaration you can only use sort of procedurally at the top level. You can't use that as an expression in a larger part of your program. You can't pass a function declaration as a callback, for example, right? It'll become a named function expression if you do that. So, so we just say, you know, throw those other ones out. Let's just do function expressions. Keep it simple. Not have different types of things to worry about. And so that's that's one piece of it. Um, and then the other piece of it is the thin arrow, um, fat arrow distinction, which is maybe it's being talked about. Maybe is going to make it into the next version of JavaScript if they end up um, adopting it. But this idea that in JavaScript, and you'll know this if you do a lot of um, jQuery or, or prototype, where you know whenever you need to to bind the the this value of a function to stay the same even as you're passing off the function as a reference into an, an options object or into a callback, then you have to bind that function to the current value of this. So you do that with, with um, function.prototype.bind, or you do that with jQuery.proxy, or you do that with underscore.bind, or you write var self equals this. Or there's a million different ways of saying, I want this to stay the same. And CoffeeScript gives you that thing where you say, give me a fat arrow, and the fat arrow means that the this at the time that you write the function does not change. So even if you pass it off and store it in a different object, that this stays the same. So so I think that's that's sort of the interesting shift, right? With the arrows, you have the visual difference, which I don't think is, is super important between typing out function and typing an arrow. 
but then you have the simplification of not having three different kinds of functions anymore, and you have the ability to very easily say, give me a function where the value of this doesn't change. Hey, uh, I'm curious, uh, why did you choose that uh, particular arrow syntax? Where did you pull that from? <clears throat> so uh, sort of visually and symbolically, the we were, I mean, this is one of the things that actually was debated a great deal, like all of these sort of little visual things in on the GitHub um, issues, if you want to go look at it in the early versions as to what the notation should be. But the basic idea is just that, you know, with a function, the input points to the output, right? The input goes on one side and your value is on the other side. And so visually you have this thing where you can see the left-hand side is the input and then the arrow pointing to the right-hand side. And because there is no, you don't have to write return in CoffeeScript, right? The value of the expression on the right-hand side is the value of the function. There's sort of this nice little parallelism that you have where it's just literally input points to output and you can see how it works. But you didn't pull that from any other language? Um, no, I think we did. I think that uh, doesn't doesn't Haskell do something similar? I mean, Ruby uses arrows for a different purpose, so we weren't we weren't sort of following off of that. I think oh, the main okay. idea was just to have the arrow to be a pointer. Right at the time, I don't I don't remember how much input or if you already had that syntax, but I'd been doing OCaml and it has a similar syntax. Yeah, I haven't used OCaml, but I think I think it just it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, you know I'm uh, I do some .NET and .NET has uh, the same exact syntax for its lambdas, and I think they pulled that from OCaml. So I was just curious if they had a common parent for that uh, syntax and that expression of the visual representation. It's probably floating around, and people probably see it and don't realize they've seen it, you know, and then it comes back up. And I've, I've heard other justifications for it, too, where with a thin arrow, people say that it looks like a lambda, right? If you sort of take the thin arrow and twist it on its side, it looks, it looks visually kind of like a lambda. So that's another, another source. Yeah, I, I've noticed, you know, when I was learning CoffeeScript that it, I didn't find it to be difficult at all to make that jump and feel like I don't need the function all the time simply because, you know, coming from having done .NET programming with lambdas, it seemed very natural to me. Can I just say it feels harder to go from CoffeeScript back to JavaScript <laughs> than from JavaScript to CoffeeScript? I do weird stuff in JavaScript now. Well, it, it, I think it's interesting because syntactically you can get away with a little bit more with CoffeeScript. And uh, so for me, going from Ruby to CoffeeScript is much less of a, a leap than going from Ruby to JavaScript. And really what it comes down to is in Ruby, you don't have to include the curly braces or the semicolons and things like that. And so I wind up forgetting them in JavaScript. And then my code does funky stuff or it won't run because it needs those curly braces or something. And uh, see, in CoffeeScript, I I, I'm just I'm just saying, just in programming mode, I, I don't have to make as big a transition. I'm I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. It's just that's the way it is. Well, I was just gonna say I think the curly braces is a little difficult for me when I go to read because I like I like some sort of visual cue, and I think it's okay to get rid of some of the syntax because obviously we don't need all of it. A lot of it's just superfluous. But I do like some syntax to like clue me into what's going on. And that's that's where I found it to be just a little confusing is understanding when a function's being invoked because it's just like function name space, 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 space. Yeah, I've I've heard a few people say that they would <clears throat> like to see um some kind of closing at the end of functions like an end or something keyword. Y you know, I yeah. agree. I agree with what AJ is saying about visually. It seems a little bit difficult to parse through, but I think that the jump from, you know, a more high uh, common server side language into CoffeeScript is a bit easier than it is to go into JavaScript because I think JavaScript is just such a different mindset, and CoffeeScript is kind of like pulling that mindset back to something that's more typical, something closer to to Java, even if the visual representation looks quite a bit different. Those sounded like fighting words. <laughs> <laughs>
Is this Java, something that's closer Java, to Java? Java? Or, that's or that's a good thing? Yeah. So, well, Wednesday, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's more familiar to people that are doing, you know, a Sursa language. In terms, well, in terms it, of grouping, oh, visually, real quickly, um, I, so one of the things is that you, you totally can, you know, delimit everything in terms of its begin and end um, in CoffeeScript. And if you prefer that style, then you definitely should. But instead of having do end and open curly, close curly, um, it's easier because you can just use parentheses, right? Parentheses are the logical way to group um, operations, whether that's a block of code, whether that's the arguments to a function, whether that's the operators inside of a complex piece of math. You know, you can use parentheses to group anything you'd like in there. So you can actually put parentheses around the body of your function? Sure. <laughs> it's it's because everything's an expression, right? So everything will Right. Isn't that why you can do that? Uh, uh that I guess I guess that's I guess that's sort of part of the reason, yeah. Yeah, parentheses can just pop right in. So I wanted to ask you about um I posted this link I was somebody posted this thing on Hacker News about linguistic relativity about how the languages that you speak affect the way that you think about stuff. Do you think stuff like that applies to programming languages where different languages um, will affect the way you approach problems? And if so, how do you think CoffeeScript affects how people approach problems as opposed to JavaScript? That's a very good question. I think I think the whole notion of you know the Saper-Whorf hypothesis and, and linguistic relativity is one that's much debated over and much argued over in academic circles. And everyone's heard the anecdote about Eskimos having fifty different words for snow, but how true is that really? It's you know it's yeah. probably as true as as the stories I, say. I, but at the same time, there are you know certain certain tribes that you know that don't have the cardinal directions, but only have left and right, and have to express how to get around in terms of left and right instead of north, south, east, and west. So there, there's a little bit of that going on um, in in human languages. I think there's maybe less than folks thought you know at a certain point in the in the seventies and eighties. Um, but at the same time, in programming, it's very interesting because in programming, we know that that you know well all real programming languages you know being Turing compete complete are able to express the concepts that you can express in any other Turing language, right? You can you can express in JavaScript all of the semantics of Haskell if, should you choose to, or or vice versa. Um, but that doesn't mean that people do on a day-to-day -day basis, and that doesn't mean that the programs that you write um, tend to. And I think we I think as programmers, we all sort of believe very strongly. In, in the linguistic relativity in our programs. We know that if we write a program in Clojure or if we write it in Ruby, the, the way that it functions is probably going to function very differently. And we care a lot about the way that it functions because it's not just about the end effect, right? It's not just about what the program does when it runs. It's not just, you know, you're making a, a web app and so the web app looks a certain way. Um, but the behind-the-scenes stuff really matters in terms of how you're going to work with it and maintain it and refactor it and how easy it is for you to hire people to understand the code that you wrote and work on it with you. Um, so, so I think I think it plays. I think it's actually a more. I think linguistic relativity is a more interesting question in terms of languages than it is in terms of natural languages. Um, and CoffeeScript, however, might be the best uh, best conversation about that because the semantics are uh, are just JavaScript semantics. So, so basically, the things that you can say in CoffeeScript are the same things that you would say already in JavaScript. Um, just it's easier to write, and and hopefully it's easier to read. Is the but, but even then, I find myself writing much different code in CoffeeScript than I would in JavaScript for the same problem. Like even even if it is like so in, similar, yeah. How how does it change for you? Um, I think I do a lot more. It, it sounds weird because JavaScript seems like a more functional language, but I do a lot more functional stuff in CoffeeScript of chaining like transformations together, um, like. Especially the the comprehensions. So instead of doing like a for each loop and then and then doing stuff in that and then saving the results or, or doing I don't know. 
yeah, I'll just use comprehensions to change stuff together a lot. So I don't know. I think part of that is, is again, from the everything is an expression idea where you can chain together the results of expressions. I was talking to a guy who's uh, on our team who's like an old Ruby programmer. And he, he says that part of the reason why in Ruby you have implicit returns is because you think of your functions as just transforming some input. So you're not doing something and then building up something and returning it. You're, you're operating on an input and then it just kind of streams out of the function. So I think that's something that I think about more in CoffeeScript than in JavaScript. So can you clarify what it means to be like an old Ruby, Ruby programmer so he's at least like 10 years old? <laughs> yeah, he's like three rails. I don't know. He's old school. Yeah, Pre-Rails. <laughs> he's been coding since before 2004. Well, not, no, he's been coding <laughs> since before then, but he's been doing Ruby for a long time. Uh, Ruby's from like, what, like 1994 or something? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah the Early 90s, right? Around the same time as JavaScript, I think. Yeah, and it, it, it didn't really come to the U.S. until like 99 or 2000, maybe 2001, something like that. So, when, speaking uh, of... What's his name? Dave Thomas picked it up and, and went with it, got excited about it. Tim, were you going to say something? Yeah, sorry. So, speaking of other languages, I've been working a lot with Lua in the last few months for, I don't know, I just wanted a different VM to play with on the server. And I am amazed at how similar it is to both CoffeeScript and JavaScript. They have completely independent, as far as I know, I mean, development plans. It was made in South America because something about they couldn't use U.S. technologies. And as JavaScript evolves, it looks more and more like Lua. They have a lot of the same features. And I think CoffeeScript has a lot of influence on where JavaScript is going. It's interesting how we're all evolving into this similar scripting language. That seems true to me, too. It seems like as CoffeeScript shows what JavaScript can be, I would imagine that the people that are designing JS Next are looking at that and saying, hey, what, how can we make JavaScript better? And this is a great plan of you know, examples of how JavaScript can be better. Is that, do you find that same thing, too, Jeremy? Um, well, I mean, the, we, there's, it's all it's all a bunch of friendly folks. So if you want to, you know, talk on the on the ES Discuss mailing list, they're always open to uh, ideas and suggestions on the proposals that they're working on, and they definitely, you know, uh, especially I guess uh, Brendan Ike and uh, Douglas Crockford have have taken a look at it and played around with it a little bit in terms of uh, of looking at what it's doing. I don't know about how much of a direct influence it is because I think they're trying to sort of come from first principles at the problems um, in in JavaScript. Um, so maybe there's just a little bit going on there. One thing that we do try to do in CoffeeScript is is adopt things that we can from from JS.next or ES.next or whatever we want to call it. So looking at the current, um, so basically on wiki.ecmascript.org, you can see a whole bunch of the proposals that are going into the next version of JavaScript, things that have been sort of agreed upon in general consensus already and things that are still more raw proposals. And a lot of the ones that are possible to implement in terms of in terms of Internet Explorer six and seven semantics are things that we will try to do. So destructuring assignment we do, um, and default values and functions we do, and uh, rest and spread parameters is something that we do with slightly different syntax that may or may not be changed. And then of course arrow functions. So some of the easier syntactic things. And there's tons of stuff we can't possibly do that just isn't implementable in terms of JavaScript or isn't implementable in a simple way, like uh, weak maps and proxies and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is if you if you implement something in CoffeeScript that is coming up in ES next and uh, it's not necessarily available in JavaScript, do you... I guess you're building it out in the current version of JavaScript where you can, and then not not implementing it if it's not possible. I'm not. I'm not, I don't quite follow. What was that? So, if there's something in the next version of JavaScript that that you want to put into CoffeeScript, um, do you only put in the ones that you can implement with the current versions, current available versions of of 
JavaScript? Yep, the ones the ones that we can implement, the ones that we can implement simply, it, it can't be too complicated, and the ones that we think are good ideas, um, right. basically. Um, but the, the main thing is that is that we're very concerned with just JavaScript that runs everywhere, right? All of the mm -hmm. code that CoffeeScript generates should run on every JavaScript runtime. We should be able to use it on IE6. You should be able to use it in Node. You should be able to script Photoshop and Illustrator with it. Um, and to that extent, the, all the stuff that's being added to the next version of JavaScript doesn't actually affect us that much because we won't be able to use it as a compile target for you know however many years it takes for IE7 and IE8 to uh, finally disappear, which I don't know is ever going to happen considering the whole Windows XP thing. Right. So, so what is the com least common denominator then? Is it um, IE7 it's, and it's IE8? Basically, it's basically IE6 is, is the lowest, lowest common denominator of stuff that has to work. But then again, IE's JavaScript engine didn't change much between 6 and 8, so it's basically the same thing all the way through. So I wanted to ask you about debugging. Um, debugging, when I first started CoffeeScript, was probably my biggest hang-up because you're not debugging in the same language as you're, as you're writing code in. And yep. um, I feel like it's gotten better over time as I've worked with the language more. But what kind of support does the language have for debugging? I know source maps are, are a thing that's being worked on. And, and are there other things like that, too? Yeah, so debugging, there's a few different angles. I mean, so clearly it's a source-to-source -source language. So, I mean, there, we don't, it's not a runtime. and Like, anything that compiles to JavaScript is going to be that way, right? So if you want to use something that's not JavaScript in the browser, you're going to have to fight with this in one way or another. And yeah. there's several things that we do to try to make it easier. So, so we try to, you know, throw syntax errors uh, as early as possible, which we don't always do a great job of, but we try to make it harder to, um, to have code that's going to fail at, at runtime but is going to compile. So we'll try to throw an early warning if there's something that's syntactically invalid. And there's simple things that actually give you a lot of pain in JavaScript, like trailing commas in your array, right? You type a trailing comma into your array, everything looks groovy in Chrome and Firefox when you're testing. When you deploy it to production, it blows up in IE, and you never got warned unless you ran JS lint on it. Um, so we, we, you know, we fixed, CoffeeScript doesn't have problems with trailing commas. It'll fix it either way. If you have it, if you don't have it, it doesn't really matter. It'll always compile it down to the correct thing for JS. Um, so we try to catch stuff like that at, at compile time. Um, we try to do more early warnings. So the latest version of CoffeeScript actually has compile time errors for lots of strict mode problems, things like assigning to, to arguments or to eval, things that are semantic errors at runtime in strict mode in new engines are now compile time errors for CoffeeScript. So we'll warn you up front about that. Um, oh, cool. And then the next step with compile time stuff is compiling to readable code. So we put a whole ton of effort into making sure that the JavaScript that is produced by CoffeeScript, it is still going to be generated code. We try to make it as readable as we possibly can. So that means you know, using nice variable names, writing it all out and indenting it correctly, um, and basically trying to, you know, the generated code is going to, we're going to try to make it performance. Um, so we're not going to write inefficient code just to make it a little bit more readable. But we are going to try to make it as readable as possible. So when, when you actually have your JavaScript debugger open and you have an unexpected null, null um, value in your function somewhere and you're stepping through with the debugger the JavaScript code, that shouldn't be painful. That should be something that's relatively comfortable to go through. Um, and then the last piece of the puzzle, of course, is source maps, um, which are now in Chrome stable, which we want to support in the next version of CoffeeScript whenever someone has time to do a nice implementation and get that in. Um, which will make it so that you can basically have your CoffeeScript source in the browser. I'm personally not as as super psyched. I mean, everyone's been asking for for source maps forever. I think I personally think that having readable generated code is more important than having source maps. But source maps will be nice for folks who want to use them. Um, for for people who aren't familiar, the basic idea with source maps is that when you compile your CoffeeScript, you also emit a file that that tells you tells the browser for every line of, of CoffeeScript what is the line and character of JavaScript that corresponds. So when they get an uh, error in the JavaScript, you can map it back to the source and then show the original source. Um, I'm a little bit, I'm not as excited about those because 
you're still going to have, and this is less true for CoffeeScript, right? CoffeeScript semantics are pretty straightforwardly one-to-one, more or less, with JavaScript. But with other compiled JS languages that have more complicated outputs, even with source maps, if you have an error deep inside of the JavaScript, there might not be any place in the source language that corresponds to that problem. So, you know, you might still, you, for, the, for the really tricky things where you're trying to debug something that doesn't necessarily exist um, as such in the source code, I think that readable source is more important than source maps. Mm-hmm. The source is great too. It's it's very readable. It's funny when we first started using CoffeeScript here, there were a couple of people who were really upset by the the mismatch between the language you write code and language you, you debug in. And we kind of talked about the whole C from assembly thing and how. So there are a couple older guys here, and one of them talked about how when uh, when C first became popular, people were just all up in arms about how you're writing code in a different language than you're debugging in, and and it's like impossible to know what's going on when you have a problem and stuff, and how just tools got better and better. So it seems like that's the 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 promise of source maps that if it really bothers you now, like the tools are getting better and better, yeah. um, and and people just won't care about it. They'll just think I think, of I, think I think that's definitely true. And I think it's also still, again, much more of a problem for other people than for CoffeeScript. CoffeeScript probably has like the least amount of that. I mean, it's very like you're going to have it for all your files if you're using CoffeeScript for everything. But it's so much less than, say, Minified JS. You ever tried to debug Minified and compile oh, JS in production? <laughs> that happens all the time, and that's and that's really what you need source maps for, right? Source maps yeah. would be insanely helpful there. Um, and they'll, they're going to be a little bit helpful for CoffeeScript, but not nearly as much as they would be for that. I, I have an idea for, for the debugging. Just just don't write error-prone CoffeeScript. Then you won't have a problem. No bugs-driven <laughs> development. I like it. There you go. Hey, that's See? what we've got over here. Oh, is that is that what you write, AJ? Yeah, we uh, that's that Jameson our no bugs driven development here. Yeah, and I, we took it to I, ITV I, with him. I implemented it there. Oh, nice. <laughs> Very nice. So, so I, I well though it has oh, some ahead. bugs in its implementation. Hey, I had a question related to you know the uh, not necessarily just the readability of the code that's put out, but the form and structure. I was specifically looking like at class declarations and the way that you know the prototype model. Um, exactly how you use it, which is a slightly different flavor than um, my typical way that I build my classes. Um, I just want curious, you know, why you chose the different ways to output JavaScript. Some of them were stylistic, some of them were just personal preference, and um, some of them are actually more efficient. Um, can you can you tell us briefly about the difference between how CoffeeScript is doing it and how you like to do it? Um, I'm trying to be trying to remember exactly uh, the way that they write out the prototype. Um, it writes out the prototype and then it goes and it modifies, or sorry, it creates the function and then it goes and it modifies the prototype and every different function is a different modification. And um, I, uh, I typically use an initializer um, on the prototype and then I have a different object that goes back in. It's hard to explain over the Well, mic. I think, are you, are you talking about saying um, class.prototype equals an object literal and just assigning everything to the prototype in one big object? No, not, not quite that syntax. Um, I'd have to pull if we could. It's it's too too difficult to explain over the mic. I'm just, but that's just one particular example. Like you know exactly how you structure that prototype. Um, sure. I, I assume it's, there's a lot of other areas where you did the same thing. Right. So one th- one thing that we're trying to do with the classes, um, and and maybe we should start this by with the preface that that you know classes in CoffeeScript are just the same thing as JavaScript prototypes, the way that they're commonly used. We're just trying to. You know, call call a rose a rose, and if it if it looks like a class and walks like a class and acts like a class and you use it like a class, we're just going to call it a class instead of being dogmatic and saying that JavaScript has no classes because you know constructor functions are basically class objects the way that you use them in in JS. So with that with that said, 
um, we're trying to be straightforward about it. So, so there's, there's not really any, there's lots of things you'd like to do with, um, JavaScript classes. You'd like to add maybe richer hooks so that you can tell when a class is being extended or mixed into, you'd like to add, you know, other types of features like, like, um, we do a little bit of this, but like, you know, correct static inheritance. So you get, you get all the properties off of your parent class as well as the properties off of your parent class's prototype. Um, and we try to we try to keep it straightforward so that CoffeeScript classes are interoperable with JavaScript prototypes, right? If you have a JavaScript prototype coming from a, a JS library that's not written in CoffeeScript, you can have a CoffeeScript class extend that and vice versa. You can have a JavaScript um, library extend your CoffeeScript class using the prototype without too much of a problem. Um, so the basic thing is just to, to set up the prototype in a foolproof way. And that means, you know, assign the properties individually. Don't blow away the um, the prototype objects that you lose that that prototype chain going back up to its parent. Um, and then the other cool thing about CoffeeScript class bodies. So it was it was sort of controversial to add them, and we had a bit of a I don't know if, if Tim remembers it, but we had a bit of a back and forth over you know whether CoffeeScript should have a class keyword or not, and what that would mean, and if it was worth doing. Um, and one of the reasons why it ended up getting added was because we realized there would be a way to implement it where the entire class body is executable code. So when, so usually when you define a prototype in, in JS, you're either you know doing it as a big object literal and it's just simply key value, or you're sort of assigning properties one at a time and it's very verbose. You're always typing you know superclass dot dot you know prototype dot method name equals function and you're doing that over and over again. And so lots of people have to write functions that give them the sugar for doing it more easily. But we realized that because, you know, we have the compiler and we can sort of look at this class body in the abstract syntax tree and work with it, you can have it be executable code. So, so this is something that actually Ruby has and it's pretty nice where inside my class body I can, I can do metaprogramming, I can wrap my functions, I can say I'm going to define a function on this class but I'm going to memoize it, I'm going to pass it into a different function that turns it into a memoized wrapped version before I use it. I'm going to put in an if statement, so I'm going to say if, you know, debug define this method this way, otherwise define this method this way, and then instead of having that check at runtime, you know, my class has been defined differently depending on whether debug is true or false, and all kinds of fun stuff like that. Um, and then also, well, I guess I can get more into it, but then the one last thing I should mention is that um, the context, so, so if your class body is just executable code and you're defining keys and values that become, you know, prototypal properties, um, the value of this in the context of the class is the class object. It is the constructor function. So if you've inherited from a parent class, now you have access to all of the stuff on that parent class. So you can implement fun things like, like rail style has many and uh, belongs to in CoffeeScript classes pretty easily because if your parent class has that function available, that has many function, that's going to be available as this.hasmany within the class body and you can use it to set things up like that. So would you consider your implementation of uh, classes to be a best practice for JavaScript developers versus, say, assigning, uh, assigning an object to the prototype? Um, it, it, no, it goes, a, it goes slightly beyond that. So I think, I think it's the basic best practice of creating a new constructor. So basically when you set up the prototype chain, you have to make an instance of your parent class to set as your prototype, but you don't want to call the constructor function. So there's this little bit of shuffling that you do if you want to do it correctly, because the constructor function could have side effects, and you could be you know, launching the nuclear missiles or running some code you can't take back if you actually call the constructor function. So there's a little bit of shuffling you do where you make an, a new empty function, you make a new instance of it, you assign the prototype, and then you swap that into place. And that's sort of the best practice for setting up prototypes in JS. And then we do a couple extra things, one of which was the static. We copy over the static properties from the parent class, which is totally optional. We, we want to do it so we can get that sort of has many 
metaprogramming in the executable class body. But if you weren't doing that, you don't need it as much. And then the other thing is we assign uh, underscore underscore super reference. And that's just so that we can, so that CoffeeScript can call super. Use it has a super keyword. So you don't have to know about the name of your parent class um, when you're writing functions. And those are the two extra things that you don't need to do. Do you guys see a lot of people using inheritance in CoffeeScript? I don't know. I feel like I don't see enough uh, of other people's coffee script to know. I know I certainly use it. We use it a lot in backbone stuff um, with, with views and models and stuff. We have like base super class views that do garbage collection things to clean up events and, and stuff like that. That's probably the area we use it the most. Do you have more than one level of inheritance typically? No, we haven't yet. Just one. Yeah, I Just think one, one level, level of inheritance is pretty common, right? You have a whole bunch of different object types that are vaguely similar and that you want some sort of common functionality shared amongst all of them. And then you want it to be, and, and especially when you want it to be overwritable, then that's where the inheritance gets really useful. Okay. I find I, in, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. I find in node programs that I often inherit from event emitter or stream for my for my domain objects because if you if you inherit from event emitter suddenly your object can emit events and it's really handy and node has this built in like utils that inherit which basically does the same thing but right i mean it's it's nice that you can just declare it in a in a very ruby-esque function body or class body so is there a way to do um basically mix-ins and get kind of a sort of multiple inheritance going with coffee with coffee script I mean, and with JavaScript, right? So that's that's sort yeah. of the standard. The standard, actually, that's like how anything works in JavaScript is you're just mixing in functions onto the prototype, right? right. So you make you make a new a new constructor function, and it's got a prototype object that you can add things to, and then you just mix stuff in there. So it works the same way in CoffeeScript. You can just add functions to any prototype you like, all the way up the chain. So, what about using features of the language that some of the engines have but others don't? Like, would you have a a V8 mode of CoffeeScript where it uses the ES5 and some of the ES6 that's there. So that we would compile to it as a compile target or we would allow you to use it in the grammar if you wanted to? Right, well, either. I mean, ma mainly as a compile target. So like if, if I knew I was compiling for an ES6 engine, then maybe I could just set underscore proto on the function instead of copying over the parent's keys. That's right. Um, so that's definitely been debated, and I think that Michael Ficarra, who's one of the main contributors to the current version of CoffeeScript, who's working on his own version of the compiler, wants to add um, at some point to his version down the line. I'm not terribly interested in, in targeting different JavaScript runtimes because I think that there's way too much of that happening already in, in JavaScript. There's way, way, way too many awesome node libraries on NPM that could perfectly well work in the browser but don't. You know, things like tweening or, or math libraries or, you know, doing HSV to CSV, or sorry, CMYK color conversions um, that are written for Node. And because the original author just needs to use them in Node, they take advantage of all that fun stuff like object.keys and for each. And then it doesn't work in IE6 even when it could. And, and I think that that's sort of a big problem. Like a lot of the advantage of JavaScript is that it runs, you know, everywhere. And it runs in all the browsers and it runs on the server. And the more to which we can write JavaScript that runs everywhere by default, like the better off we'll, we'll all be. So, so I'm not terribly interested in in in, uh, in supporting that in CoffeeScript for that reason. You know, like would it, I think it would normally be a bad practice to omit, especially if it was just as fast to do it the other way, which it probably would be for a lot of the common, the common Node stuff. Um, you might as well just have it be compatible. So, so I'm glad you brought up the new compiler. Oh, sorry, were you done? Oh, I just just had one more question. I mean, okay. That's, this, is the, this is the great thing about JavaScript is it runs everywhere, but this is also the great bane of JavaScript with the people who are trying to evolve the language and fix the warts is 
you can't remove anything because yes. someone somewhere in their business depends on IE6. And if they don't have those customers, they don't have a business. And so this, this decade-old browser is holding us all back. And so, I mean, that's the good and the bad about JavaScript. You can't break the web. Curse you, Microsoft! <laughs> hey, they fixed it. <laughs> they got a whole new engine. Yeah, they do. If only, if only they would, they would uh, automatically update it in an XP. Then I think everyone would be much happier. Right. Yep. Yes, that is that is definitely the curse of JavaScript. Um, it's the curse and the blessing, right? You know, right. like it might also be the reason why JavaScript is so popular. You know, because it really hasn't changed. I, I think. I think that. I mean, well. You know, apart from it being in the browser. But I mean, these things are all connected, right? It doesn't change because it's in the browser and it's popular because it's in the browser. And is it popular because it doesn't change? You know, who knows? But yeah, it's hard to these tell. things are all tied together. I've, I've definitely seen the contrast working with Lua because Lua is server-side only. And because of that, it's not near as popular. How many people, I mean, how many of you guys know Lua? I like read something about it once. That's my I know experience. Yeah. Yeah, I thought right. I've heard of it. I thought it was only used to build World of Warcraft extensions. Right. I mean, but as a language, it's extremely similar to JavaScript. It's actually a little easier to learn. But because it doesn't run in the browser, no one uses it. But at the same time, they're free to evolve the language. So I yeah. mean, JavaScript being, is what it is. Being free to evolve the language is also a blessing and a curse because you know we all, we have the whole Ruby 1.9, Ruby 1.8 thing. We have the whole Python 3, Python 2 thing where it's like a huge effort for relatively trivial changes, right? Like Python 3 isn't that different than Python 2, but it's really hard to get everything moved up. Right. So do you feel that CoffeeScript lets you evolve the language without breaking the web? Exactly. It's one. It's one fun thing about CoffeeScript. So. CoffeeScript actually has made a decent amount of breaking changes. Usually it's sort of minor things that you can just find and replace and fix up very easily, but a decent amount of breaking changes. And it's not, I'm, I'm much less concerned about it than if we had a VM because, because we target lowest common denominator JavaScript and that's what we compile into. All of your CoffeeScript that you have ever written will always be compatible with every other version of CoffeeScript, you know, all the way into the future, right? CoffeeScript that you compiled with you know, version 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 is always going to be completely interoperable with any other version because the semantics are defined as JavaScript semantics. So to that extent, you don't really have to worry about making breaking changes to the language and changing syntax even because your old code will still run with your new code. You just can't recompile it with a new version of the compiler until you upgrade that syntax. So that's kind of fun. So, so I want to make an argument here about the, the breaking the language thing. Internet Explorer has Chrome Frame. So I mean, like people will install people install Flash without a problem. I I really just don't get this mentality of, oh, it doesn't run in a browser that's twenty years old. Blah. blah. Yeah, I know, but but uh, but out out in the world, it's a whole other thing, right? Like like we always we always. What have do you mean this. out in the world? You just you just tell people, look, you must download this plugin. The end. I mean, people download Flash all the time. They've done it for for you know over a decade and they don't have any problem with it nobody complains about it i mean like some of us that are more technical complain about it but none of the end users are like oh no i have to install flash yeah That's but because a lot of them know really what tangible it is benefits to flash they can watch like they flashes youtube right flashes like all these game sites and if stuff already works uh, exactly you want and them all to these install game Chrome sites Frame? if if you have all these game sites like you have with all the html5 games the only way to play them is either to use an HTML5 browser to install Chrome Frame. Yeah, like I, so. There's all these tangible benefits. I just I think this whining about it is stupid. Like I, just I don't think that's do whining. But no, I mean like the the people are constantly saying, oh, we can't do it because of Internet Explorer. Oh, we can't do it because of Internet Explorer. Just use Chrome Frame. Just put a little button there. In order to use this site, you must have this plugin. Right? In order to continue listening to music, you gotta have this plugin. In order to play this so game, you gotta have this plugin. Uh, Unfortunately, for for my context, you know, in order to use this site is is at least a couple of weeks ago. The example for that would have been the homepage of the New York Times. 
So we're not, I don't think we're going to put a big banner up on the on nytimes.com that says, you know, please upgrade, install Chrome Frame to continue viewing the homepage, right? That's just like, that's a non-starter. And, uh, and if you tried, well, to, sure. if if you tried not, to get that up. If you're up, not doing anything where you're actually using, you know, if you're not intensively using the language, if you're just kind of, well, you I mean, know. you do. Like, this is, this is in the context of, like, an election results widget where we've got a live HTML5 map um, on the homepage. And we still have to do the Flash fallback for IE, right? It's going to be Canvas, and every browser supports Canvas, and it's going to fall back to Flash for Internet Explorer just so that you don't have to, don't have to make them upgrade. Right. So, well, so, then so, they have to install Flash, so why not have them install ChromeFrame? Because they already have Flash. Yeah. Maybe. Bingo. Anyway, I, I want to jump in here and ask another question. We, we've been talking about... Uh, cross-browser support and things like that. And um, my understanding, and I may have this wrong, so you guys can correct me if I do, but um, JS Lint is something that kind of provides you with a, a common denominator for, um, you know, to avoid some of the issues that JavaScript can can throw at you. So, um, and, and I understand that CoffeeScript actually compiles to JS Lint, Lintable uh, JavaScript, correct? It's actually JavaScript Lint, Lintable JavaScript. It's a different program. So JS Lint is the Crockford one, and it's fairly dogmatic about, about or, or pedantic or whatever you want to say about the style that you use. It has to be very Crockford style, and that's why we have JS Hint and other things. But there's another older program called JavaScript Lint, which is the one that we use. So if you, if you type coffee dash dash lint as you compile, it'll also lint the output of your program and make sure that that it doesn't have any um, style problems. Right. And so is, yes. is, is that to help with some of these uh, funky issues that come up from the different engines to help it work um, everywhere? Or is that just so that you can say it's proper JavaScript? That's mostly actually to keep us honest with the readable code. Like we want we want the style of, of we don't want to have any, you know, extra semicolons and funny places, even though it won't affect or too many parentheses around around things, even though it doesn't affect the uh, the semantics of the generated code. It's okay. mostly just so that we can lint it and make sure that we're emitting, you know, sort of correct, pretty printed code all the way through. Okay, cool. So I have one other question, which is You've got the opportunity with CoffeeScript to fix a lot of things in the language, you know. So you add in a lot of this stuff that's from Ruby, and and uh, I think that's really great. Why not just uh, make a control flow paradigm, fit it into the language, so there's not 15 bajillion different control flow things that everyone's using. Uh, what do you mean by control flow? You're talking about Node and async stuff. Uh, no, I'm talking about JavaScript and async stuff. So, for example. Uh, a simple promise library, a simple event emitter. I think Node's pretty much standardized that one, and people that are looking for an event emitter will either use that or I think jQuery has one too. Um, just something that makes it easy to compose functions that are anonymous and keep out of the pyramid of doom. Yeah, so I think I think that's really not as standard as as it as it needs to be in order to make that change. So Node does its thing, right? Node's got a emitter which does one thing. Node's got its callback system, which does something um, a little bit a little bit different, right? So Node callbacks expect the error to be the first argument of the callback, and that's something that might have been around a little bit, but that Node otherwise more or less invented. And all the asynchronous APIs on the web usually don't do that, um, and it's actually a problem because if you're writing, so this came up. We, there was there was an effort a while back maybe like over a year ago, a year and a half ago, to try to merge underscore.js and async.js, which is uh, on GitHub, Kaolin's 
um, Kaylin McMahon's great um, library for composing asynchronous functions in Node. And we wanted to merge the two so you could have, you know, underscore dot map and underscore dot async map and have them both work the same. And the reason why it didn't end up happening is because, unfortunately, Node's use of the error as the first argument to the callback has basically polluted all of those APIs. So it's not generic anymore, right? You can't pass a callback to an, a regular async map function in the browser and say that there's always going to be an error as, as the first argument to the callback. Right. So, well, that's so what well, maybe 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 I can maybe I can make this a little bit more clear. So say I async map over an array, just be like I don't have to, but I but I just want to. I async map over an array. The first argument to the callback is going to be the um, the item in the array. But now if I async map over filesystem.read file, right? Now I'm just reading a whole bunch of files um, and looping over all of them and mapping them. At, the argument is now the error is the first thing. So you can't do it in this generic fashion. Um, and so that, that's like one of the reasons why I think it'd be very, very hard to standardize it, you know, sort of quote unquote in CoffeeScript. I think it'd be very, it would be either, it would either be compatible with Node and, it, and not compatible with lots of other things or vice versa. So what I'm saying is why not just create an arbitrary standard and, and go with it, you know? Just, just create something that's implementable easily in JavaScript and that makes sense mathematically. Because the problem I've had with these other control flow libraries is they haven't approached the problem from the perspective of, making it composable. Uh, I think jQuery's done a really good job because, well, they had the same idea that I did. And um, and I think I think Node does a really good job in general, except for the callback being last is, I think, dumb because you, you can't count on the callback being in a particular position. But uh, so what I'm saying is if somebody in the community that's a leader in the community were just to say, here's something that's going to be part of the language and this is how we're going to do it and then you can use it or you can not use it people might gravitate towards adopting that standard as being part of the language rather than saying, oh, well, I'm going to write a library to handle this, and then whenever you want to include uh, somebody else's code, you get their, their control flow library as well. Yeah, it sounds so if, if there was one that was obvious and standard and mathematically sound, then please uh, open a pull request and send it along because that sounds, that sounds awesome. But I think, that, I think that you're also sort of describing the risks there, right? Like you just mentioned jQuery and Node's approach to this and they're not compatible, right? Like jQuery, you know, the jQuery promise callbacks don't work exactly the same way as, as the Node ones. And I know Node is thinking about well, moving towards more of a jQuery. Those are completely different. Like you can implement the jQuery style in Node without any problem. And you can implement the Node style in jQuery sure. without any problem, other sure, than just, the, the error first thing. Right, but, but then but somebody which, which has one, to write. Which one would CoffeeScript work with by default? Or would it work with neither by default? You'd have to write a mapper. You know, and then there's, and then it, there's more like this for other things. So I think, I think that one of the reasons why CoffeeScript's been you know, as useful to folks as it has been is because it's basically compatible with any JavaScript library. There's no JavaScript library that you're going to have to shim to make it work better um, with CoffeeScript, really. So I think that's one of the reasons why, why, why it works. Um, one thing that you should definitely check out is that there's a fork of CoffeeScript that the OkCupid guys use for all of the, I think their server-side um, OkCupid stuff called Iced CoffeeScript that adds asynchronous primitives. Um, they basically take your code and then they transform it into continuation passing styles. So they transform it into callbacks. You don't have to write the callbacks. You can pretend like you're, like you're waiting for an asynchronous value to come back without having to write a callback, and then it'll transform that for you. And it's pretty. Yeah, and it's pretty advanced. It's pretty. It's pretty well done. I've I've taken a look at that, but I feel like that approach is, like, it doesn't compile cleanly to JavaScript because it's wrapping so much to create the closures and 
it's, it's, it's doing a lot for you, right? You can pretend you can pretend like like you're going through an array comprehension and you're doing an asynchronous operation to every single thing in the array and then using that immediately on the next line. And it does all of that callback transformation for you. That's why it has to be so ugly in terms of the generated output. It's, it's yeah, like a pretty... And, and so I don't see that as being a really good solution because it, it doesn't fit with the way JavaScript is. Yeah. All right, guys. Right. We, we, we need to get to the picks. Is there anything else we need to go over before we uh, wrap this up? I just wanted to ask what your role in CoffeeScript is now, Jeremy, because it's pretty well established. It sounds like there are lots of people working on it. So what do you do day to day on it? Are you kind of a benevolent dictator? Uh, uh, yes. I mean, I don't do as much as I should um, day to day. There's been there's been in, in, in a lot of these open source projects that have sort of taken off and grown legs. There's folks who are much more active day to day. And in CoffeeScript, that's, you know, Michael Ficarra and Gerald Lewis um, are very you know, good about keeping things chugging along day to day. I'd like to, to, you know, I think I like sort of as these things get more stable and you're sort of comfortable with them being useful and, and you don't feel the obligation to keep working on it constantly. I think it's nice to, you know, not work on it very much for a couple months and then dive back in and put out. That's adorable. <laughs> oh. uh, I think, We're going to have to do some editing just, here. <laughs> did did well, you guys hear all that? that? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I was hitting my mute button. It didn't work. <laughs> it did not work. No worries. Awesome. Anyway, to uh, to finish my thought, um, I think it's nice to take a break for for a little while and then come back and put out a big new release. So I think the next thing on the plate for CoffeeScript is getting source maps done and, and among with lots of other little tweaks and bug fixes and things. Right. Cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the picks. Um, AJ, why don't you start us off? Okay. Is my mic working now? No, it's, it's still, still staticky. pretty staticky, but I can hear you. Uh, try one thing. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, they're still static on the line. All right, well, I don't know what to do. Sorry about that. Um, so I'm going to pick the Raspberry Pi and Arch Linux um, because I got my Raspberry Pi, and I like it, and I put Arch Linux on it, and it worked, although it's a little too much like Gen 2 in the sense that it uh, you do everything on your own, and it breaks at every step, and it's a complete and utter headache, but, uh, you know, it's kind of fun. You learn something, right? Yeah. All right, cool. I think we're all a little bit jealous. I know I want a Raspberry Pi, so... You should have ordered one. They're shipping. Oh, really? I thought yes. there were only a limited number. Well, there's a limited number in the sense that they can only make so many per day, but there's not a limited number in the sense that you won't get one eventually. I mean, I ordered back in February. <laughs> You've been oh. waiting expectantly. All right. Jameson, oh. what was that? Did somebody say something? I don't know. All right, Jameson, um, what are your picks? All right, I've got four picks. The first one is Dash. If you're on macOS, it's a great um, graphical documentation viewer. And it has um, like the Node docs. It has the MDN docs for JavaScript. It has like HTML and CSS stuff if you want that. It has the iOS stuff, Ruby stuff. It has just all these different documentation sets that it knows how to go scrape off the web and download so you can view them offline and search them really easily in, inside it. Is that so in the I, App Store? No, I don't think so. It's free, though. Um, it's just Dash, D-A-S-H. And I, I use that all the time now because the Node docs are uh, not alphabetical, in alphabetical order, and that causes me large headaches. Um, my next one is a book called Predictably Irrational. This is, I think it's a pretty well-known book. I just never got around to reading it. It's about um, it, behavioral economics. So the idea that people are um, be, behave in, in irrational ways, but they behave in the same irrational ways. And we can look at dumb things that we do repeatedly and analyze them to, to fix, mis fix mistakes. So he talks about procrastination and um, like dishonesty in the workplace and, and what incentivizes that and what incentivizes people to be more honest. 
and lots of other stuff. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Chuck bugged me for not picking music recently, so I've got a music thing. Russian circles, if you like post-rock, so just instrumental stuff, it's a little bit of like the harder end of post-rock, but it's really great programming music to just kind of zone out and, and write some code in. And then my last one is a thing from New York Times. I think Jeremy might have tweeted this. It's this basketball visualization that they did. Oh, I was um, going to use that for mine for today. Oh, well, I guess no. We can, I guess we can share. Yeah. yeah. It's fun. It's it's sweet. It's really cool. It's um, I don't know what exactly they used to do it, but it shows the location of all of the shots taken by the heat and the thunder and individual players on the different teams. And it's got kind of a heat map of how many points they've scored from different places. It's pretty sweet. Jeremy can yeah. probably talk more about it. but Well, just so Jeremy White and Joe Ward and Matt Erickson uh, worked on it with uh, – with a statistician, I believe. And uh, I think it's fun because it sort of shows the kind of thing that you can do if you take JavaScript seriously in terms of like a document, right? Like this is basically a chart of, uh, of, how, of how deadly the players are from different positions um, on the court, but at the same time because it's using Canvas. So those are all, I think, little Canvas um, um, sort of portraits that then turn into the, into the, the chart. Um, it's much more interesting than it otherwise would be. Are, are the individual cells on here canvas things, or it's all one canvas? The individual charts, I believe. So like each portrait okay. that then turns into the into the graph. But it's sweet. I posted it in Skype, so you guys should check it out. It's really cool. Cool. All right. Um, well, Jeremy, sounds like you've got some picks ready. Why don't you go ahead and pick? No, that was that was mine. That was my pick. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, Joe, what are your picks? All right. Um, I have a couple of picks today. The first one is uh, I want to – I think somebody already picked this in a previous one, so I want to re-pick it, the Ready Player One book. Uh, that was an awesome book. Um, my next pick is for uh, Day9. I don't know if uh, – he's a sportscaster for eSports, specifically uh, uh, StarCraft Two. Oh, my gosh. Day9 is so cool. He is so cool. He's actually picked as one of the um, 30 under 30 to watch. Uh, by Forbes magazine for the entertainment industry, and he's a great, 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 great sportscaster. And really, uh, people like him are going to bring the sport of esports a lot more, and make he makes it a lot more enjoyable to watch an esport like StarCraft. And then my last pick is uh, the uh, growing object-oriented software guided by tests book. Um, a lot of people call it the Goose book. It's a fantastic book about doing test-driven development, and so that's my third pick. Awesome. That's also the book club book for the Ruby Rogues podcast. <clears throat> and um, it looks like we I've got confirmation from one of the authors. We're going to get confirmation from the other author and then probably talk to him in August um, about that book. So something to look forward to there. <clears throat> um, Tim, did we warn you about picks? Um, I think so. All right. Do you have a so, couple things you want to share then? Um, sure. So mainly... Mainly just that everyone needs to remember that programming should be fun. And recently I started a blog called nodebits.org. It's it's node specific, but the purpose of the blog is to just remind you to have fun programming. And it's it's a community-driven blog. Right now I'm the only author, but anyone can, can contribute to it. Just come up with some really interesting hack and write up an article and, and it can be posted. Awesome. All right. Well, my picks, uh, the first one that I'm going to pick is relevant to CoffeeScript is the CoffeeScript cookbook. Um, it's actually, I think it's coffeescriptcookbook.org, but I'm not 100% sure. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, a friend of mine, David Brady, and a few other local guys started it up, and uh, it's got a lot of uh, terrific ideas on how you can use CoffeeScript to do different things. So I um, highly recommend that you go check that out. And... Um, the other thing that I want to recommend to people is, uh, you know, to go check out Stitcher, um, Stitcher Smart Radio. It's 
It's another way of getting podcasts, um, but it streams it to your phone, and it, it's kind of a cool service. So um, I I highly recommend them. They're they, they're just really cool. The only problem I have with them is that the um, producers of the shows have to put the shows in, or they have to submit the shows, and then it'll pull them off of the RSS feed, and uh, you know, and then send them out to you. The issue is is that not all of the podcasts that I listen to have been submitted to Stitcher. So I find myself. Um, if I'm using Stitcher on my phone, I find myself still fiddling around with iTunes. So, um, you know, that's something to be aware of, but I really like the way that they've handled a lot of this stuff. So you can go check them out and I'll put a link in the the show notes for them as well. And with that, I think we're, I think we're done. Is there anything else that anyone wants to announce or? Oh, I forgot about this. Okay. Um, I started up a papers and computer science reading group. I don't know as much about academic CS stuff as I would like. And, uh, I'm not in school anymore, so I want to keep up with it. Uh, it's really just going to be like a Google group and then we're going to do a hangout or something once every so often. We haven't quite nailed down the times. First one is today, so it'll be too late by the time you hear this, but, um, I'll post a link to the Google group when we figure out the next time. We try and pick really accessible papers. Um, we're doing like the, the Google one right now. So about talks about PageRank and the, their first implementation of the crawler and, and search engine and stuff. So it's, it's trying to be something that people of all skill levels can participate in and enjoy. Um, but you can learn cool stuff if you want to, if you're interested in that type of thing. So you guys should all join and, and check it out. Awesome. Yeah, while, while we're plugging other things that we're working on, I will be having the, the JSON APIs um, online training. It will be in the middle of July, and I will have all of that finalized by the time this episode goes out. So um, I'll have a link in the show notes for that as well. Um, and with that, let's go ahead and wrap this up. We'll catch you all next week. Thanks, Jeremy, for coming again, and welcome to our new uh, hosts. Thank, Thank you so much. Me. Thank you. Thanks.